Strap locks are devices you can install on your guitar. They lock the strap to the guitar's body so that the guitar can't fall off on stage. They're just one of countless extremely specific useful instrumental accessories that, if you don't play the instrument, you probably never heard of. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I am your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad you've joined me to talk about guitars with strap locks, guitars without strap locks, and sometimes instruments that aren't even guitars at all. It's crazy, I know. Strong Songs is entirely listener-supported. I put a lot of work into this show, and the only income I get from it comes directly from listeners. If you enjoy Strong Songs, I hope you'll consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash strongsongs or making a one-time donation. We've come to the end of Season 5, which means it's time to take on something a bit bigger than usual, and what better way to say goodbye to a season than with one of the ultimate musical goodbyes of all time. The stage is set and there's so much music to hear, so let's bring down the lights, strike up the band, and get after it. was the year that concert films returned to the public consciousness in a big way. That's thanks largely to a certain world-beating pop superstar. But while Taylor was breaking box office records with her Eras film and Beyonce was preparing to enter the ring with a film of her own renaissance tour, beloved classic concert films were also making a return to theaters. Earlier in the fall, Talking Heads and Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, an incredible film that got its own Strong Songs episode a couple of years back, returned to theaters. I actually saw it in theaters, and it was so cool. I hope that some of you out there got to see it as well. What a great movie. And in addition to Stop Making Sense, just a couple of weeks ago, at the end of November, another beloved concert film returned to theaters for its 55th anniversary. The Last Waltz, a 1978 production directed by the great Martin Scorsese, is widely held up to be one of the greatest concert films of all time. It documents the final performance of the Canadian-American rock outfit The Band in 1976, a concert held in San Francisco's Winterland Ballroom and featuring a list of special guests that would make even a casual music fan's head spin. Muddy Waters, Joni Mitchell, Dr. John, Van Morrison, Niels Diamond and Young, and Bob Dylan all joined the band on stage in what, particularly when viewed through Scorsese's directorial lens, as well as the camera lenses of some seriously talented DPs, now legendary cinematographers like Michael Chapman and Laszlo Kovacs helped make this film, thanks to all their work, it feels less like a goodbye and more like a snapshot, a preservation of a certain music scene in a certain place at a certain time. Or, as band guitarist and songwriter Robbie Robertson put it during one of the film's many casual Q&A sessions behind the scenes, We wanted it to be more than just a concert. We wanted it to be a celebration. Celebration of the beginning or an end? Beginning of the beginning of the end of the beginning. Whether it's a beginning or an end or both, The Last Waltz is definitely a celebration and a film that I hadn't seen in so long that I barely remembered it. So... I decided that I'd dedicate Strong Song's season 5 finale to the film and to the many magical musical moments that have helped it endure for more than 50 years. This film should be played loud, reads the exclamatory text at the start of the movie, something that I found charming even as, with some of my recent hearing issues, I decided not to follow its instruction. I turned it up to a moderate volume and found myself, fittingly, listening to the end at the beginning. The film opens with the encore performance that took place at the end of the concert, the band's staple song, Don't Do It, with title cards introducing the core members of the band. Baby, don't you do it. 
Those core five members, guitarist Robbie Robertson at the front of the stage with bassist and vocalist Rick Danko beside him, singing drummer Levon Helm back behind his kit, keyboardist and vocalist Richard Manuel at the piano beside him, and multi-instrumentalist secret weapon Garth Hudson on his perch at the back, surrounded by organ and synthesizer keyboards. One interesting thing about The Last Waltz is how many aspects of the night at the Winterland aren't shown in the film. It was, by all accounts, a whole Thanksgiving celebration, 5,000 in attendance with a feast served beforehand and even dancing. You can see some of that dancing at the beginning of the film, but it's presented without explanation, which makes it all feel a little bit strange and magical. In short order, the film hits the beginning of the set with the band's opener, their hit song Up on Cripple Creek, not my favorite word to say, but it's presumably named for an actual creek since there are a few creeks with that name around the United States. It's a song that embodies so much of what makes a band song sound like a band song. Southern fried Americana vibes, twangy lead vocals, familiar blues harmonies, and just a little extra sonic something to set it apart from other similar sounding songs. So this song is in the key of A, and it's not trying to chart any dramatic new harmonic territory. We're strictly in 1, 4, 5 territory. But what I like about the band is how they demonstrate that truth of rock and roll, that the right songwriter can take those three chords, 1, 4, and 5, and turn them into an infinite number of good songs. Like many band songs, Up on Cripple Creek was written by Robbie Robertson with lead vocals supplied by drummer Levon Helm. It was a single off of their second album, their 1969 self-titled record, and it holds up in its way, though of course I don't think you'd see many artists calling their song Up on Cripple Creek in 2023, even if that's what the creek was called. Now I mentioned that this song, like a lot of band songs, has a little extra sonic something that sets it apart, and that begins with the two chords at the end of the chorus, which go outside of that one, four, five paradigm. Through the chorus, we've just been on those three chords, one, four, five, until we get to the end. On the lyrics, A Drunkard's Dream, it goes from five up to six minor, F sharp minor, up to a flat seven, G major, which is where an unusual sounding instrument comes in. That sound is courtesy of the band's secret weapon, keyboardist and multi-instrumentalist Garth Hudson playing a clavinet keyboard through a wah-wah pedal. At least I'm pretty sure that's what he's playing on stage, and I know that's what he played in the studio version. It's common to put a keyboard through a wah pedal these days, but back in the late 60s, it was actually a lot less common. And I've never talked about wah on the show before, but it's a sound that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. A wah pedal dramatically boosts a certain narrow band of frequencies on an instrument while cutting the other ones, sweeping higher and higher into the frequency range as you press the pedal further down, which allows for a lot of really interesting and very vocal sounding playing on top of whatever you're doing with your fingers. It's commonly associated with the guitar. Jimi Hendrix was a master of the wah, but it sounds great on keys and other instruments too. Hudson's use on this song adds a layer of funkiness to the sound that's not always present in more straightforward roots rock and is a good example of the kinds of sounds that Hudson contributed to the band. The last thing I want to highlight on this song before we move on is Helm's vocal performance. He sounds great, and I remain so impressed by anyone who can sing and play drums at the same time just due to the physical demands of the drums compared with most other instruments. It is hard to sing and play drums at the same time. Take it from me, I've, I've tried. That's how that little sweet thing of mine puts a donut in my teeth. I'm going up on Cripple Creek, a 
Helms sang a number of the band's most famous songs, but he's only one of three singers in the group. Keyboardist Richard Manuel sang a lot of harmonies and took lead from time to time as well, as he does just a bit further into the show, belting out the shape I'm in and sounding great doing it. And that leaves the band's third singer, the sweeter-voiced bassist Rick Danko, who takes over after that song for another Robbie Robertson classic, It Makes No Difference. sounds so good on this. It's so gentle yet strong. His vocals are a big part of what I love about this song. It's probably one of my favorite band songs off of their 1975 album Northern Lights Southern Cross which was recorded just a year before The Last Waltz. This song is in B-flat major, which is an unusual key for the band. They tend to favor more guitar-centric keys like A and E, which makes me think that Danko requested this key to fit his voice, and it really does fit his voice. He's in his sweet spot for a lot of this melody. He's right there in his mix on the verses between D and F, which is the toughest part of the male voice to master. For any of you out there who've tried to do it, you know what I'm talking about. But for a good singer, it's also one of the most expressive places in the voice, that passaggio that I've talked about so many times, that elusive, magic middle zone. And he is clear as a bell when he starts out here, hitting Fs and Gs like they're nothing. But he's also so expressive. On a later verse, he goes much higher and he lets his voice almost break. He pushes his vocals into this more desperate place, which is in line with the words that he's singing. These old love letters, I just can't keep them. Well, these old love letters, well, I just can't keep them. Because like the gambler says, read them and read. There's a real cry in his voice, but it's not melodramatic. It's just the right amount of emotion. And I love that chord right there as well. They go from the one chord to a five minor, which is a little unusual. Five is usually major. And if that sounds familiar to you and maybe dramatic for some reason, those are actually the first two chords of Sufjan Stevens's Chicago, among other songs. And I talked about that chord progression one to five minor quite a bit on my episode about that song. I really love how it sounds here. It's a dramatic, surprising chord, and it fits really well with what Danko is singing. The song goes on, and soon we get a trademark twangy Robbie Robertson guitar solo. And don't worry, I'll talk about Robertson's guitar playing, his underrated guitar playing, in my opinion, a little later on. But after Robertson comes Garth Hudson on an unexpected instrument. The soprano sax. And this solo that he plays, this guy known for his organ playing with the band, it totally rules? His sound is great, his intonation, his articulation. It's a thoughtful, soulful solo, and it hits just right. The soprano sax is a choice. Every time you play it, you are making a choice. It's arguably the hardest saxophone to play and sound good on, as evidenced by the many, many people who have played soprano and sounded bad. But if you can get it right, it's a sound like no other. This nasal, almost double reed sound, tempered by that broad, saxy openness that... 
Well, I don't know what inspired Hudson to pick up the soprano for this solo, but it is just the thing. And it's funny, you know, this song is in B-flat, which also happens to be a great key for the soprano sax. So maybe Hudson is the one who got it to be in this key. (laughs) Now, I should acknowledge something that some of you who are more familiar with this film are probably already noticing, which is that I'm not covering every song in The Last Waltz, partly because there are just too many, both in the film and in the live show, which had a lot more songs that didn't make it into the movie in the first place. You can actually go listen to them, and I recommend it. I'll have a link in the show notes for the full album of the concert. There's a lot of great songs that are in the film. Um, Acadian Driftwood, actually, one of my favorite band songs, is a great performance of that song that's not in the film that I kind of wish had been because it's such a good song. And in particular, I've skipped over some guest artists who I will talk about later. A lot of them have written so many great songs on their own that they'll probably get their own episodes of Strong Songs at some point. So I won't spend too long on any individual guest, but I do want to start talking about the guests. Because The Last Waltz isn't just a celebration of the band and their songs. It's a celebration of the community that they formed and the friends that they made on the road over the preceding decade and a half. And one of the film's most memorable guest appearances happens shortly after it makes no difference and it was recorded separate from the concert itself and the Staples singers Cleotha, Yvonne, Mavis and Pops Staples came on stage to perform what just might be the band's signature song The Wait I pulled into Nazareth Just feeling about half past This song is so iconic, it's been featured in so many movies and TV shows that it's almost ceased to exist as a song in its own right. But it's a great song. We're back in the key of A, Levon Helm is holding down the groove in the lead vocals, and when the chorus rolls around, unlike on the 1968 original, the harmony vocals get a special Staples boost. So I want to get a little bit deeper into this song because it's a great song and also because this live version adds and removes some interesting things compared with the 1968 original. This is the original studio recording released in 1968 on the famed band album Music from Big Pink which was named for the ramshackle pink house in rural New York State, where the band and Bob Dylan lived and recorded in the late 1960s. So get this in your ear and listen to the bass in particular. So now let's go back to the last waltz version, which makes a significant change for that second verse. I picked up my bags and went looking for a place to hide. So Mavis Staples of the Staples Singers takes the second verse and immediately introduces an entirely new sound, reworking Robertson's lyrics into her own take on the melody. Come on, let's go downtown. She said, I gotta go. But my friend can stick around. Take a load In a 2014 interview with The New Yorker, Mavis Staples reflected on this performance, explaining that they actually did three takes of the song, though she was happy with the first one, and she basically sang it the same way each time. I've had a lot of great moments in my life and career, she said, but that is something where I could put my chest out and hold my head up, and I can just be super proud. She continues, I remember every moment we had doing that. Pop said, Mavis, baby, you shouldn't carry it out so long like that. And I said, nah, daddy, that's the good part. That's what I feel. He said, okay, do what you feel. That's the best thing. Do what you feel. And at the very end, as the camera fades, you can hear Mavis Staples whisper one word. Beautiful. 
Oh, man. It's this incredible, genuine moment. The New Yorker asked Staples about that, and she said, well, quote, it was so beautiful to me. I was surprised that was caught on tape, you know, because I thought I was whispering. It wasn't rehearsed to go like that. It was just a feeling that brought that on. The excitement of being with our friends, Levon and Danko, and those guys were such good friends of ours. To be singing with them and knowing that this is going to be on the big screen, the silver screen, it was just a moment in time for me. You could probably, Mavis said, had you been there, you could have heard my heart pounding. So that, I think, is one of the cool things about this kind of music and this kind of song. These simple, blues-inflected Americana songs, they make it so easy for someone to sit in with a band, to take a verse, to make it their own. They resist any kind of canonical performance, and because they're so simple, they allow for infinite reinterpretation. These songs are like big, open rooms where a new resident can easily just move around, stretch their legs, and find where they're most comfortable. Not all music works like that. In fact, a lot of the songs that I've talked about on this show don't work like that. More meticulous compositions require either a more precise performance by a guest artist or a more dramatic reimagining. You can't really imagine someone just sitting in and taking a verse on Bohemian Rhapsody, for example. It might have happened at some point, but it's not really the same kind of a thing. But most band songs can be performed by anyone with a voice and a guitar or a piano. It's something about the communal nature of this kind of music, which you could broadly call folk music, regardless of other genre distinctions and regardless of the particular type of folk playing it. It's music that you play with your friends, with your people. It's written to invite collaboration and reinterpretation. Go down Moses, there's nothing that you can say. Pop Staples takes the third verse, and I love what he does with it. Again, there's so little relation to the melody that Levon Helm sang in the original recording, but think about it. It'd almost be weird if he just sang it the same way, right? (laughs) This is the sort of song that's just supposed to be sung a hundred different ways. Of course, the backstory behind the Staples appearing in the film at all is that they recorded their own version of The Wait with their own band back in the late 60s. It rules, and they immediately make it sound like something all their own. Like, okay, let's get close with it. Here's how Levon sang that opening line on the original recording. I pulled in the Nazareth, was feeling about half dead. Killer, just a great performance of an incredible lyric. I pulled in the Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. Super straightforward, nothing more to it. Let's listen to how Mavis sings it. Pulled in the Nazareth, I was feeling about a half past dead. Okay, so far she's staying pretty close to the original. Let's listen to the next line. I just need some place where I can lay my head. Hmm, okay, he jumps up to that F sharp there. I always remember that note just because it's kind of a surprising jump and he handles it really delicately. Where I can lay my head. Okay, now let's hear how Mavis sings that same line. I just need some place where I could lay my head. Interesting. So she adds some embellishment to the first line. I just needed some place. I just needed some place. But then she actually keeps it down low for the second half of the phrase. Where I could lay my head. Totally different than what Levon sings. So let's listen to his whole first phrase. I pulled in the Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. I just need some place. And now let's listen to how Mavis Staples sings it in her studio version. I 
And that's just two musicians. I mean, Aretha Franklin also covered this song, and she sang it pretty differently. I pulled into Nazareth. I was feeling about a half past dead. Just a completely different melody. She's making it up as she goes. That's Dwayne Allman on slide guitar as it happens. And when it's time for the chorus, I mean, what do you think that Aretha would do on the chorus for this song? This Aretha version rules, and there are so many other great covers of this song as well. And I don't know if interpretability is quite the word, but it's that malleability, that interpretability that makes band songs special and makes them stand the test of time. And it's what they leaned into with this guest star-studded concert, particularly on this song, as they invited the performers of one of the Waits' most famous covers on stage with them to help them reinterpret it yet again. So here on stage in San Francisco, eight years after they first recorded it, I think it's pretty interesting how the band themselves have changed how they play their own song. Of course, they're singing the melodies differently. They probably sing the melodies differently every time they perform it. But I also noticed that Richard Manuel's piano parts are significantly toned down compared with the original studio recording. On the original, the piano jumps out of the mix. It's a really memorable part of the recording. It adds this dramatic urgency to an otherwise pretty laid back song. Live on stage in 76, he's just playing the chords, man. It's just a more laid-back and less specific performance, which I think is interesting. I'm not sure if he consciously decided to tone down this part, if he had done it over time, if he was just making room for other performers in this version, since it was a special occasion. Whatever the reason, it changes and smooths out the vibe of the song. Another even more noticeable change in that direction to me is Rick Danko's bass part. I have always loved the bass line on the chorus of the studio version of The Weight. The chords go from A down to E, down to D. Again, we're in A, and that's that one, five, and then four. And the bass line could just follow those notes, A, down to E, down to D. A ton of other bass players would do that, but Danko does something a little bit more interesting. He starts up on the third of those first two chords. He plays C-sharp, then A, then G-sharp, then E, and then D. Over the chord progression, it sounds really nice. It's just a little bit unusual. I think it adds a nice flavor to an otherwise simple chord progression. You hear it? Take a load for free. It's nice. Take a load off On stage in San Francisco all those years later, Danko played that straightforward bass line. He just played the roots. For whatever reason, he got rid of those thirds that he played in the studio. The differences continue to pile up, though. Levon Helm's groove is also different in The Last Waltz versus the studio. In the studio, he changes up his groove on the chorus. He switches his snare from backbeats, that standard thump-pop-sizzle groove that we've heard in so many songs, and puts his snare on every downbeat, giving the chorus a driving energy that pushes it forward. Take a load off you feel it? Pa. It's really a very different ensemble performance, and the differences continue after the chorus. That bass line right at the end of the chorus, Danko plays this descending A major scale that's a very famous bass line. Like, that's one of the first bass lines I ever learned. I think jamming with some friends when we were all just sitting around in an apartment, it seemed like an easy song to learn. But I remember learning the bass line, and every time we got past that chorus, I was like, okay, here we go. A major scale, time to play a descending A major scale. (laughs) 
but yeah, I was not very good at the bass. So anyways, during the last waltz, what happens there? Well, no descending A major scale. Just a straightforward bass line here too. And again, I really don't know why they made so many changes to the way that they played this song, but the thing is, I liked a lot of those little specific ideas they introduced in the original recording, but once you strip them away, you're left with a more elemental version of the song. Just the chords, the words, the groove, and the melody as interpreted by whatever singer happens to be singing it. She said, I gotta go, but my friend can stick around. And as it turns out, that's a terrific way to treat this song for a performance like this one. I like each of the elements that they've stripped out, and yet I can't argue with where the song ended up. In the end, it comes down to that communal thing, the way that these songs and a lot of music from this era and this music scene lends itself to loose collaborative group performance and free reinterpretation. It's one of the magical things about the movie. You're seeing these luminaries of music flit in and out, singing a single song or maybe two, but they're all just a small part of a greater whole. And even each individual member of the band seems to acknowledge that's true for them, too. They're all just part of this much bigger thing. Well, Winterland was the first place that the band played as the band. Some friends showed up and helped us take it home. Early in the film, Robertson is talking to Scorsese, and he says that they wanted to bring some friends on stage, and Scorsese pushes him on that and says, well, they were more than just friends, right? No, they were more than just friends. I feel they're probably uh, some of the greatest influences on music on a whole generation. And that's true. Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, and all the rest are hugely influential artists, but they're also the band's friends, or at least that night on stage they were. There are definitely accounts of some stressful moments and rising animosities backstage during the show, and Levon Helm famously has soured on The Last Waltz in the years since it came out, but that's just how it is with artists and performers, I think, anyways. On stage things are different. On stage, you come together. And that was an essential part of the magic of that night and of that performance. Every Thanksgiving weekend in Portland, Oregon, a big group of local musicians takes over a local theater for the weekend and puts on a show they call The Next Waltz. They get a big horn section, a big band, and they invite up a bunch of singers and instrumentalists from around the local scene, and they recreate The Last Waltz just as it happened all those years ago. I've been meaning to go to the next waltz since I first moved to Portland almost 10 years ago, and this year I finally went. And it was so great! I'm gonna go to the next waltz every year. This is the LaRonda Steele Gospel Quartet performing The Wait on the Night That I Attended the Show, as recorded on my phone, so don't be too hard on the audio quality. And as special as that night was, in fact, The Last Waltz has inspired a number of similar events in cities around the country and, for all I know, the world. And at the heart of the whole thing, of getting together and recreating The Last Waltz every year, is that same sense of community, that feeling of a bunch of friends getting together to make music together for one night on stage. And I don't want to paint a false picture here. I'm sure that not all of the musicians on stage that night got along. There were doubtless some rivalries, some jealousies, some frenemies in the mix. Every music scene has its share of those. But that's not what comes across on stage when it's time to perform. And in the moment, that's what really matters. And so, inspired by that same collaborative spirit, let's go through some of the guest artists who appear in The Last Waltz with just a thing or two that I enjoy about each of their performances. Ronnie Hawkins is up first. The Hawk, well-known around the Canadian rock and roll scene in the 1960s, and also the former frontman for the band when they were his backing band and were known as The Hawks. He joined the band to warm up the crowd with Who Do You Love? It's a real no-frills barn burner for the most part, but I do love Hawkins' energy, and in particular, I love that escalating scream he does toward the end of the performance. (laughs) 
That's how you do it, man. Hawkins definitely kicks things up a level during his song, especially in terms of the intensity. So the next guest artist, New Orleans pianist and vocalist Dr. John, sets a groovier pace with Such a Night. Man, no one sounds like Dr. John. And the thing that he brings to this performance more than anything else is his piano playing, which swings so much harder and so differently from the way that the band ordinarily grooves together. It's a real pleasure to hear someone who plays like this sitting in with the band because it demonstrates how flexible the band is, how they're able to mold themselves around so many different musical styles. This is actually an instructive way to talk about the difference between swing and rock. Like, a lot of what the band plays is more rock. It's soulful rock, but it's still rock. Let's go back to Shape I'm In, sung by Richard Manuel earlier in the set. It drives, it pulses, it rocks, but does it really swing? Now this swings. And speaking of groove, Dr. John knows how to bring it home with a closing piano solo. Throughout the last waltz, the band shows a real aptitude for shape-shifting, becoming whatever kind of group they need to become for the guest artist who is singing. When Neil Diamond comes up for his song, Dry Your Eyes, for a few minutes, it just becomes a Neil Diamond concert. And if you can recall the singer, can you still recall... (laughs) Does anybody else sound like Neil Diamond? No, they do not. Dry your eyes. Slowly, just like you're off the wall. Granted, the band is helped along by the fact that Dennis St. John, Neil Diamond's longtime drummer and musical director, also sat in on the drums for this song. But still, it's a convincing bit of musical shape-shifting. I was really impressed by how dramatically the vibe shifted the minute Diamond came on stage. The same goes for their soundstage performance with Emmylou Harris, who sounds beautiful with her voice placed atop the band's three-part vocal harmonies. as well as their on-stage performance with Van Morrison, who was an easier fit stylistically with the band's overall sound and vibe, but still managed to change the energy on stage ever so slightly, partly because he's just such an unhinged, high-energy performer. Another notable guest who appears early on in the film is Neil Young, who for me anyways, I can't actually identify Neil Young by sight. So he comes out and it's this kind of unassuming looking young guy. He's playing harmonica and then he goes to the mic and he starts singing and it's like, oh, that's Neil Young. That's what Neil Young looks like. There is a town in North Ontario. Just one of those funny moments where you have to reconcile the fact that you don't actually know what an artist looks like, even though you could identify their voice in a split second. In my mind, I still need a- and speaking of easily identifiable voices, one of my favorite moments of the whole film actually takes place on Neil Young's song, Helpless, when near the end of the song, he's joined by a certain backup singer. Now, I remembered going in that Joni Mitchell was on this concert, but it still felt like magic when she made that first appearance. You can hear the crowd reacting, too. It actually kind of reminds me of Stop Making Sense when Lynn Mabry's voice pipes in from offstage on Heaven. Speaking of Joni, 
I have to pause for a moment on her song Coyote, which is the opening track off of Hijira, a record she released the exact same month as The Last Waltz in 1976. This is my actual favorite part of the entire concert, which, yeah, it's partly because I love Joni. I love this song. I love Hijira, and I would just watch a movie that was an entire Joni Mitchell concert. But also, I love how ably the band is able to completely transform in order to support the performance of this song. We saw a farmhouse burning down In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night We rolled right past that tragedy Till we pulled into some roadhouse lights Coyote as a song is defined by a handful of different things. For starters, there's Joni's guitar playing. Like always, she's in an alternate tuning. This time she's playing the guitar tune to C, G, D, F, C, E, which any guitar players out there will immediately know is a far cry from standard E, A, D, G, B, E tuning. I'm guessing that some of you out there haven't listened to my episode on Help Me, her song from her album Court and Spark, which she recorded a few years earlier than The Last Waltz. You should really go check that one out, partly just to get a better appreciation for Joni, because Joni Mitchell is amazing, and also for a more in-depth look at her guitar playing, because her tunings and her resultant extremely non-standard guitar parts were a big part of what made her songs so distinct, and that's certainly true for Coyote. And of course, there's her singing. It is typically Joni. She tosses off these flowing, semi-improvised sounding melodies full of conversational lyrics that summon such evocative images. It's so joyful. At times, she's laughing while she's singing. Man, I could watch Joni perform forever. But the studio version of Coyote is so distinct sounding that I really think it's impressive that the band managed to make it work at all. Joni's playing electric in the studio, which is a very different sound for her. Bobby Hall is playing percussion and keeping things really light, but also keeping things moving. And then there's that bass. Not just any bass, Jaco Pastorius, one of the greatest bass players who ever lived, a pioneer of jazz electric bass, who played on a number of tracks on Hijira and is a defining part of that album's sound. So no pressure, Rick Danko, right? But you know, the band gets it done. They sound really good. They transform into a Joni Mitchell band just for this one song. The fact that they're able to play it so credibly to make it work, despite how different the instrumentation and the musicians are from the original, it really speaks to the band's flexibility, and I find it really impressive. We saw a farmhouse burning down In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night The next three guests come out one right after the other, Paul Butterfield, Muddy Waters, and Eric Clapton, and all three reinforce the band's connection to the blues, which is an important and interesting thing, to me at least. First comes singer and harp man Paul Butterfield, blowing his harmonica on Junior Walker's blues classic, Mystery Train. I love this style of harmonica playing, where he's really a member of the rhythm section. Now, I've talked about the blues many times on Strong Songs, so let me just quickly hit the basics. The blues normally revolves around a 12-bar song form that repeats over and over. There's four bars of the one, we're in the key of E for Mystery Train, so four bars of E. Then there's two bars of the four chord, which is A. Then two bars of the one chord. And then a turnaround, the most simple version of which goes from five, B, to four, A, and back to one. And then it just repeats. 
However, both Mystery Train and Muddy Waters' song Manish Boy demonstrate that the blues can't be so easily pinned down. Mystery Train does something different that I really like. The main melody starts out right on the four chord, and they actually add an extra bar to the phrase. So the first two phrases of the blues are five bars long instead of four. So you get three bars of the four chord A, which just feels so long, like it's drawing out the resolution before it resolves to the one to E for two bars. Then it does that again, three bars of A, drawing it out before resolving to E again. And then it does a standard four bar turnaround, five down to four, down to one. It's identifiably a blues, but just kind of different than a standard 12 bar blues. So in terms of the technical form, you can almost call that a bridge. It kind of sounds like a bridge and there's that E vamp that takes place earlier in the song and that they play from time to time. But either way, it is still definitely the blues, even if it's not a standard 12 bar blues. See here, they're sitting on the four chord, and then they go down to one. Back up to the four. And then back to one. Here comes the five. Man, just listen to that again. Check out how Butterfield's harp mixes with Hudson's organ playing. It's so rhythmic. It's so good. After Mystery Train, Muddy Waters himself comes out, certainly one of the most exciting guests at the whole show. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I was going to be the greatest man alive. Actual name McKinley Morganfield, Muddy Waters played a crucial role in the popularization of Delta Blues, named for the Mississippi Delta, where he grew up. In the last waltz, Muddy Waters comes out to sing his famous tune, Manish Boy, which is yet another blues that doesn't follow standard blues form, and yet is undeniably blues. Wasn't that a man? I mean, Muddy Waters could go out on stage and sneeze into the microphone and it would still be blues, so, you know. What rules about Manish Boy is that it never actually goes anywhere, harmonically speaking, at least. The band is just playing this riff, this famous, famous blues riff, sort of implying one to four and back to one, but they just play it over and over and over while Muddy stands at the mic and testifies. But now I'm a man with past 21. To me, Muddy Waters is on stage not just as a representative of the blues, but more broadly as a representative of black music, which plays a crucial role in the band sound and in the sound of a lot of bands from this era. There's a definite dissonance watching this movie that carried across a lot of rock from the 1970s, particularly southern rock. It's a dissonance I can't resolve for myself when I watch the movie. It's just sort of there. I see Robbie Robertson, a Canadian songwriter, giving an interview in a room with a Confederate flag hanging on the wall. Or I hear Levon Helm, a white southerner, singing The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, a tragic ode to The Night the South Lost the War that was also written by a Canadian. It's a sour note for me that turns up in this kind of music. As white rock bands embrace the sounds and styles of black musicians while simultaneously embracing the symbols of the Confederacy, the Confederate flag, the lost cause, without acknowledging what it was the Confederacy was fighting for. I don't know how to resolve it, particularly from across such a great distance in time. I'm definitely not going to tell you how you should feel. But in the end, I listen to what the music is telling me. As I see all these performers sharing the stage, blending their sounds into one. Or when I read about the lifelong friendships and musical collaborations between members of the band and the black musicians they shared the stage with. And when I hear Alabama Bourne and Lee Von Helm clearly articulating how he sees the American musical melting pot. It's kind of the middle of the country, you know, right there. So bluegrass or uh, country music, you know, if it comes down to that area and if it mixes there with rhythm and if it dances, then you've got a combination of all those different kinds of uh, music. 
country, bluegrass, uh, blues music, the melting pot, show music. And what's it called then? Rock and roll. Rock and roll, yes. Sure. <laughs> or later in the film when Garth Hudson gives his view of the healing power of jazz. There, there is a view that uh, jazz is evil because it comes from evil people, but actually the greatest priest on 52nd Street and on the streets in New York City were the musicians. They were doing the greatest healing work. So yeah, in the end, I guess I just listened to what the music is telling me. Muddy Waters is a real high point of the concert. He just changes the energy significantly when he goes on stage. That energy carries on after he leaves. The next guest artist is another blues-centric guest, the last blues-centric guest, Eric Clapton, who joins the band for Further On Up The Road, which, for whatever reason, I always call Further Down On Up The Road. Anyways, he plays great. Of course he does. He's Eric Clapton. He's a very good guitar player. But my favorite moment of this performance is actually an unscripted one, and it features Robbie Robertson. (laughs) So just listening, you can't see what happened there. But after Clapton played a couple of opening choruses, his guitar strap popped off and he was temporarily unable to keep playing. But it happened so perfectly right at the end of a chorus that Robbie Robertson was able to see what happened, catch the dropped ball, and pick it up to start his solo immediately at the start of the subsequent chorus. You can even hear Clapton kind of exclaim as his strap comes unhitched. He's like, ugh. This is a good place to spare a moment for Robbie Robertson's guitar playing. The guy can write a song, but he can also really play guitar, and he holds it down even while sharing the stage with someone like Clapton, who's known for his guitar chops and solo ability. Robertson plays this peculiar Stratocaster, which I gather he had made custom. When I first saw it, I thought it looked like a two-pickup Strat with a humbucker in the bridge, but it's actually a regular three-pickup Strat with the middle pickup pushed down to be next to the bridge pickup, and that gives it a fatter tone in the second position. Okay, sorry, I'm doing the guitar thing. Uh, Point is, Robertson didn't just save the day by jumping in when Clapton needed to fix his strap. He saved the day and played a really good solo. It's not fancy, there aren't a million notes. He doesn't jump across different positions on the neck. He just plays good time and means it. I love this unplanned moment. It really demonstrates that you only need a few notes to play a good blues solo. But also, later in the song, Robertson and Clapton trade choruses, but there's something special about this chorus when Robertson had to jump in and hold it down for Clapton for a single set of 12 bars. Part of it is that it captures a moment of believable stage spontaneity. This kind of thing happens at rock and roll shows. And part of it is just seeing Robertson, who as a guitar player is often overlooked in favor of flashier or more famous contemporary stepping into the forefront in the most supportive way possible. A few songs later, the band digs into another of their classics, and what is also probably my favorite band song, Robertson's Ophelia, sung yet again by Levon Helm. This one features a killer horn arrangement by Garth Hudson. You know, speaking of that horn arrangement, there's this quote I hear at the start of the tune right here. So to me, that horn melody sounds so much like this classic Duke Ellington piece, Rockin' in Rhythm. Maybe it's just me, but do you hear what I'm hearing? (laughs) 
I wouldn't put it past Hudson is all I'm saying. He had a lot more musical training and was a lot hipper to more jazz music than some of his bandmates. In the film, Robertson actually talks about hiring him and how part of the deal they struck when they hired him was that he'd get paid to give them all music lessons. He was one of the most amazing musicians that we knew at the time. He could play better than anybody we ever heard. And we uh, had to pay him $10 a week each for these music lessons. Then I was sure it was a riff. But then I found out what it really was, was that where he was coming from and his musical education, to tell his parents at this point that he was joining a rock and roll band would have been like just pouring it down the drain. So he justified it to his uh, people and his background by being a music teacher. This tune rules. I love the original studio version, which is off of Northern Lights' Southern Cross. It's a great demonstration of how, in addition to blues, country, and bluegrass, the band also leaned on no small amount of that New Orleans sound. This chord progression really captures that. We're in C. That's where we start on a C major chord before going up to the three dominant one to three seven. That's an opening gambit that we've talked about a lot of times on Strong Songs, a very distinctive sounding pair of chords. That then leads to six to A7, then to two, D7, and then to four, F, to five, G, and to one, C. They're all major chords, well really they're all dominant chords, and that gives it this really perky, chipper energy. It's an interesting mix of Tin Pan Alley show music and regular old rock and roll, and it actually kind of transitions between the two right in the middle of the verse. Right there, actually, where I was playing on piano. So the first part of this verse is one to three to six to two. We're going around the circle of fours. That sounds like a classic show tune. But then the resolution where it goes to four and it kind of lays on the four for a minute. Then it goes to five and really hits the five and goes back to one. That's classic rock. So it's this nice mix of the two. Now the bridge, if you can call it that, is pure one, four, five rock. Garth Hudson with that killer horn riff there, going from one back to four. This is just from C to F, but he throws in that F sharp, that nice chromatic passing tone. It's this judicious use of hipness that's perfect. This whole song really is a horn showcase, which is probably why I love it so much. Later on, there's this extremely Dixieland section. I guess you'd call it a guitar solo, but it's really kind of this 20s jazz thing where everyone's soloing at the same time. There's this great clarinet solo that's either Jim Gordon or Charlie Kegel on the clarinet. There's tuba played by Howard Johnson, and he's joined in the brass section by who else but Tom Bones Malone, known to some of you as a horn player in the Blues Brothers Band, among many other bands that he played with. But he also got the call for this gig, and he brought all of his horns to the club. I mean, Robbie Robertson is just on fire at this point. yet another high point in a night full of high points. So where do you go from there? Well, bring out arguably the biggest name of the night, Bob Dylan, who comes out at the end of the show to play a collection of songs and bring the concert home. And let others do for you. Dylan, of course, an integral part of the band's musical identity. Post Ronnie Hawkins, they toured as Dylan's backing band, and he forms a connective tissue between many of the artists on stage during the last waltz. His whole energy here is appropriate for a goodbye and also for a concert film. If nothing else, Scorsese's work does capture this moment in time, and the camera's subjects are preserved, well... Forever young. young. 
And look, I'm going to do an episode on Bob Dylan at some point here. He's not my guy exactly, but I do find his music really interesting and there are some great songs in there. So for now, I will just say that Dylan is a great way for them to end this show, particularly the final number, I Shall Be Released, which the band also recorded a version of and which brings back almost every guest artist to the stage to stand together one last time. It's a pretty astonishing thing to look at. Dr. John, Neil Diamond, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, and Rick Danko on one mic, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, and Robbie Robertson on the other, with Ringo Starr playing drums off camera? I mean, what? Popular music has often tried to manufacture moments like this. We Are the World, various other all-star recording sessions, but I can't think of many or really any as organic and natural as this one. An actual show put on by a group of contemporaries who were sometimes rivals, sometimes friendly, and sometimes just friends, celebrating the end of a particular era and maybe the beginning of another. The beginning of the beginning of the end of whatever it was that Robbie said. More than anything else, The Last Waltz is a celebration of a community. At least that's what I kept thinking about 55 years later as I stood in the sold-out crowd at the Alberta Rose Theatre while our all-star cast of Portland musicians sang the same song, bunched around microphones in much the same way, to bring us home. Life as a musician isn't easy. It never has been, and it isn't now. None of those legends on stage in San Francisco had easy lives, and none of the local musicians I was watching all these years later have it easy either. The next waltz, the Portland concert, is partly a fundraiser for the Jeremy Wilson Foundation, which gives financial aid to musicians with health issues who can't afford treatment. It's a great organization with an admirable mission, but the need for it is yet another reminder of how poorly we take care of those who bring us so much joy. But in the moment, all that melted away. The real people remained on stage, united by a momentary, genuine feeling of family. It was fleeting, perhaps, but no less real there on stage. And it was really cool. And that's The Last Waltz, a moment in time so powerful and documented so effectively that it continues to echo in concert halls around the world. Watching it now, gazing across the stage at all those famous faces together in the same moment, I can't help but hope they feel the same way that I feel watching them. That for that night, in that moment, they weren't alone. They were family. that'll do it for season five of Strong Songs. I have had a great time as ever sharing this show with you all. This has been a heck of a year for me, alternatingly exhilarating and exhausting, delightful and draining. I got married, bought a new house and moved, got on a plane and took Strong Songs to the other side of the world. And that was just in the first half of the year. This fall has been challenging in some ways, which necessitated my changing things up mid-season and resulted in fewer single song episodes than I had initially planned to release. I'm revising my production approach for season six. I have so many great songs planned that I'm going to talk about. That'll kick off in February. But in the meantime, have you ever wished that you could provide some input into what I cover on the show? Well, during the break, for the first time ever, we're going to be doing a voting bracket to pick one of the artists that I cover in season six. That's happening over on Patreon at patreon.com slash strong songs. So if you sign up to become a patron of the show, you can vote in the bracket and help decide who wins the whole thing and gets an episode dedicated to them next season. 
A huge thank you to all of my patrons who support me making this show. It's been a real journey making a show this intensive all by myself for so many years. Not to mention the fact that I've been going through some growing pains, trying some new things. I feel free to experiment with stuff like this seasonal approach, which I think is going to be really good when I get it fine-tuned. And I've just been working to keep the show something that I can keep making for many years to come. You all are the only reason that I've been able to keep doing it. Making strong songs brings me so much joy. It means so much to me getting to share this with everyone and it means a lot that a lot of y'all out there seem to like it so yeah if you like strong songs if you want to support it i really hope you'll consider becoming a patron and if you can't become a patron that's totally fine there are loads of other ways you can support the show you can send a one-time donation of course there's a link for that in the show notes but you can also tell some friends about the show you can leave a positive review thanks so much to everyone who's left a review you could just send it an email with a Q&A question for a future mailbag episode send emails to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. All right, all right, that'll do it for now. I'm going to take a bit of a break and then get to work on season six. I hope you all have a happy holiday and a happy new year, and I'll see you in February for season six. Season six.